0: You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Scripture reading for this morning is Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription. So Paul went out from their midst, but some of the men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dion- Dionysus, the Eropagite and a woman who named Damaris and others with them. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. Let's pray as we look at Acts, before we look at Acts 17. Father, We come to you because you have the words of life, and we are poor and needy, and so we indeed need to hear from you. We need you, Lord, to be our guide in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in this morning, so I pray that you would use Acts 17 to transform our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There is a scene at the beginning of the movie, The Bourne Identity, where the film's protagonist, Jason Bourne, is sitting in a diner trying to figure out who he is and why he has a gun, uh, six passports, and some money in a stashed away in a safety deposit box. And Bourne also notices that he's aware of certain things that normal people aren't aware of. In the scene, Bourne says this, I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed, and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is in the cab of that gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half-mile before my hands start shaking. Bourne has a skill known as situational awareness. Uh, which actually isn't just made up in books and movies. It's an actual skill. Situational awareness is simply knowing what's going on around you, knowing what's going on around you. So last week, we heard from Jeff Hay on how we as Christians are exiles and how we are to live in and not escape our culture, the culture that we find ourselves a culture that today is increasingly becoming more post-Christian, hostile to the things of the Bible, hostile to the gospel. This week, we're actually going to build on last week, but we're going to do it from Acts, returning to the book of Acts. And we'll consider how to take the next step and engage our, co- our culture with the gospel of Jesus. That is, how can you and I learn to be aware of the cultural situation that we find ourselves in, to know what's going on, and then apply the truth of God and his salvation to those around us. So for our guide this morning, we have the Apostle Paul and the account found that we just read, Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. So if you haven't turned there, I invite you to open your Bibles and go to Acts 17, And if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew, it's page number 926. So Acts 17. So where do we find the Apostle Paul as we come to Acts 17? What situation is he facing? As we know, he's on his second missionary journey, and he's just spent time in Thessalonica and Berea. And everything hasn't gone all according to plan. He's actually been pushed out uh, by hostility, and everything's been cut short. And he finds himself in Athens, uh, waiting for the rest of his team. What do we know about ancient Athens? Well, it was the native city of Socrates, Plato, and the adopted home of Aristotle. So, for centuries, it was the leading city when it came to philosophy, or maybe what we would call today worldview or culture. And this is still the case in Paul's day. It might have been declining by this point, but still in Paul's day, it was seen as something like the Harvard or the Oxford or Cambridge of the day. But it was also known for art, architecture, and sports. But it was lacking in one area, and that is most of the inhabitants there in that city would have been biblically illiterate. The vast majority of, the, of those in the Roman Greco uh, Empire, uh, outside of the synagogues, had little understanding of the Old Testament. Much of the world was polytheistic and pluralistic, as we'll see in just a little bit. You see, we've been spoiled, perhaps, in the West with a culture that kind of has Judeo-Christian values and categories, but we're, with, we're witnessing our culture actually abandoning those categories, and becoming more actually like Athens in the time of Paul, biblically illiterate and pluralistic. And so increasingly in our post-Christian culture, this passage before us perhaps is more relevant to us than even in past generations. The next generation that's coming up in America knows little about the Bible, and so we have to go back to the basics as it were so that we can paint a picture on the canvas where Jesus and the resurrection makes sense. Now, before going too too far, we should briefly think about culture. What, What is culture, what do I mean by it, and why is it important? One scholar, Daniel Strange, defines culture this way. Culture is the stories we tell that express meaning about the world. So culture is the stories that we tell that express meaning about the world. It's how we make sense when we walk outside our our doors. How we make sense of the world. It's how we interpret it. It it could be called a worldview or a life philosophy. And it's important because we believe as Christians that Jesus is Lord over all. He's He's Lord over all, including our culture. And we believe that the gospel confronts and overthrows cultural substitutes, that is, idols, of any culture. So the gospel goes into any culture, and it overthrows the idols of that culture. And our text contains a powerful scene in the early church where Paul proclaims Christ to the pagan culture in Athens. And it provides for us a model or a pattern of how we can faithfully engage and fruitfully engage in our culture so as believers God calls you and I to proclaim Christ in our culture that's true we as believers we are to proclaim Christ in the culture that we find ourselves and I think what our text has is three it's an example of three steps Now, this isn't necessarily a formula but it's three steps, and we'll see them as Paul goes throughout this. Three steps of, for us to proclaim Christ in our culture. It's we see the culture, we invade the culture, and we confront the culture. So let's begin by looking at the first one. Uh, that is, we proclaim Christ by seeing the culture, by seeing the culture. And that's verses 16, 17. We perceptively see the culture that is around us. As Christians in the culture, we should perceive the idolatry of the culture through gospel eyes. Have you ever walked into something that was right in front of you? I remember I was walking on the sidewalk with a group of friends, and it was, we were all like clustered around. And I went to say something to someone behind me, and wham, I ran into a lamppost. Um, and I, pr- I wasn't that hurt, but, you know, my pride was very much hurt. I was very embarrassed. But I was the opposite there of Jason Bourne. I didn't really know what was going on around me. And we want to first be aware of the idols around us. And that's what we see Paul do, does in Athens. Look, let us begin with verse 16. Paul, upon entering Athens, is, is not instantly in awe of the grander and the architecture, like the Parthenon or other temples or the, the, the stadiums, what does he notice? See that at the end of verse 16? He saw that the city was full of idols. Now, there's an ancient saying in Athens that it's easier to find an idol uh, than it was to find a man. It's estimated that there was over 30,000 idols in, in this city. Some scholars said it, or some ancient writers said it was like a forest of idols. Uh, And that's where Paul finds himself, amongst this forest of gods. Paul didn't just see, what does it say there in the middle of the verse? It says, his spirit was provoked within him. That is, he was indignant. He was indignant. He saw these idols. He was indignant. He was deeply troubled by what he saw around him. Have you ever been sightseeing uh, at maybe a you know beautiful scenic spot or perhaps it's some great architecture and you're just in awe of this scene and you're with family or friends and you look over to your friend or family member and they're on their phone uh, texting someone thousands of miles away, not even paying attention to the be- beautiful scenery. Doesn't your Your blood begin to boil just a little bit. That's slightly what it was like for Paul. His blood begins to boil when he looks at these idols. He is jealous for the worship of the one true God. Paul was looking with biblical eyes, with gospel eyes. He had a heart for God. He knew knew the true God. He knew the true God. And so seeing all these false imitations made him indignant and jealous. For the honor that was due to God alone was, be, was being given to worthless idols. So perceptively, Paul sees the culture around him. Look down, we're going to skip just down a little bit to verse 23. So hey, he's now we're going to talk about his speech. He's speaking in the Areopagus and he says, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, you see, Paul was observing what was going on around him in the city of Athens. In fact, later, we're not going to touch really on it, later he quotes two of their poets. He had an idea, he saw what was happening in the culture. He observed what they were worshiping, and he and are we, on, the, on our end, observing what our culture is worshiping. How does Paul do this? And how can we... Do this well. First, remain faithful to God. I recall John, First John five twenty one. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. We need to be aware, without fully embracing. And one of the things that Paul recognizes the city was full of idols is because he's not worshiping those idols. Keeping God then first at the center of our hearts is our first priority. Because like Athens, there are thousands of idols around us. Maybe not physical idols, but they are counterfeit gods. Good things turned into God things. You've heard that before. Substitute gods taking the place of the one true God by capturing our hearts. And today, today it's perhaps more subtle. You know, Satan is crafty and cunning. And it's Tim Keller that said you can look out at the city and you can see where their idols are by the buildings, the size of the buildings. So if we consider Minneapolis, what would our idols be? Let's say probably money and sports. You think about it's okay to be impressed by the US, U.S. Bank Stadium or Allianz Field, but does it grieve us at all? Does it grieve us at all that more honor is given to those things than it is to God? Are you provoked by idolatry? The second thing with Paul is we do need to know our culture. He had an understanding of his culture. And one side of this is asking questions, asking questions. When you're reading an article or watching a movie or TV or a commercial or whatever it is, are you asking questions about that material? Like, what is it saying about the world? How does it answer the questions of, who are we? What is the problem? And what is the solution? We should ask these questions. Not just to ask them, but the goal is to go deeper, to go deeper than our culture when thinking about what they're doing. So I think about sports with this. You know, we should go deeper than the culture around us with regard to being a fan of sports or being involved in sports. Realizing that for many, sports is more than just a hobby. It's life. It's their worship. Are we seeing the underlying idols, the God-shaped holes that they're attempting to fill with their sports? It could be like belonging or community or identity and hope. Are we seeing those? And those are inroads to what the gospel actually gives people. Same would be true on, the, on one side of politics. Are we seeing that the heart, for, most, for a lot of people, is desiring security and happiness or meaning, and they're desiring those things as gods? Or it could be salvation. You know, looking to a political figure or a political party to save us from the collapse of civilization as we know it. And this is regardless of party. We tend to think if only our candidate was in office, then we'd have the right laws, the right judges, and then we'd finally be secure. It's a way of having functional saviors. And like Paul, it should grieve us, first of all, when we see that in our culture. It's not just sports and politics. It's all thousands. We should perceive what is the underlying, what is the underlying motives of the hearts of those who run into the, who, who follow those idols. Paul is listening, he's observing, and he's connecting, and so should we. We should see the culture around us and not just blindly run into that lamppost. So are we perceiving the idols at the root of many that make whatever it is, the center of their lives. Paul's response there in verse 16 or verse 17 is for him to just go do what he's always done. And he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and devout persons, which, side note, is interesting seeing how he's just been kicked out of two synagogues. So he's still doing the synagogue thing. Um, So he doesn't lack courage. But then also, he he goes one step further than that, and that brings us to number two. So first, we have seeing the culture. We see that as his first step. The second is we proclaim Christ by invading the culture, by purposely invading the culture around us, and that's in verses 18 through 23. So Paul was indignant. He was provoked by idolatry. And in that, he not only proclaims Christ in the synagogues, but he also moves into the marketplace, what's called the Agora. And he goes into this setting, and he preaches Jesus and the resurrection. He preaches the gospel. Now, the marketplace in ancient cities was really the cultural hub of that city. And it's hard because we don't really have an equivalent in today's society. It would not be like the same thing as hanging around Target or going to the Mall of America. It wouldn't be the same thing. The marketplace was the place for basically everything in the Greco-Roman world. It's where people would go to get, for instance, their news. And oh, did Paul have some news for them. So he goes down and news gives them news like they've never heard before, the good news. And in this, he gains the attention and converses with two groups. You see that there when we read it before? The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. You can see that in verse 18. Now, a little background. Epicureans were essentially hedonists. Uh, Pleasure is the supreme good in life. Uh, They have tried to avoid any anguish. While Stoics uh, would have been pantheists, who were all about self-control. They sought to be imperturbable. And these were the two primary philosophies of the day in Athens. And Paul has gained their proponents' attention with his preaching. And in verse 18, this is what they say. Look what they say. They say, what does this babbler wish to say? Babbler, if you haven't noticed, is a derogatory term. Uh, it means uh, the bird that picks up seed and then spits it out. The idea is that Paul is this just this ignorant attention seeker who has gone out and he just has gathered this extraneous, extraneous information, and he passes it off as if as if he knows what he's talking about. Now I had a friend who he loved to argue, and uh, so he'd get in an argument and then he'd go away and he'd just look up YouTube videos. And he'd, like, memorize these YouTube videos and come back arguing with you without really fully understanding what in the world he was talking about. He was a babbler, and that's what they accuse Paul of being. Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So just so we know, Paul's been preaching, but they haven't been hearing so that plays into a little bit of the context of what Paul's going to do next. This group takes him to the Areopagus, which is named after the hill, Mars Hill. You've probably heard that before. Uh, but this here, when he's taken to this, this is a group of people. It's a high council. Think like the Supreme Court. They said, this, what you're teaching, this is new to us. And we want to hear more about what you're saying. Can you explain to us so that we can understand? That's verses 19 and 20. Verse 21 is an aside saying that Athens was really interested more about what was new than learning what was true, which I think if you look out and you looked at any social media today, you'd say it's also true of our culture as well. Verse 22 standing in the midst of the Areopagus, Paul begins a masterful sermon. Now, it's a pretty short sermon. Uh, it's only two minutes long. Some of you are thinking, I kind of wish we would move to that. <clears throat> but in all actuality, scholars tell us that what happens here, this is actually just an outline of Paul's sermon. You know, this isn't the full text, because the full text uh, would be more like this sermon, two to three hours long. Um, <clears throat> okay, not really. Um, but here's what Paul says. Look at verse 20, 22. 22. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You know, since Paul has now invaded this culture, he now finds common ground with the words very religious. Paul has looked around at the culture of Athens and noticed that people are invested in more than just the physical world. You know, here's all these idols. But he knows also that man is incurably religious. Incurably religious. This is a lot like in our day if you were to go up to someone and say, I can really tell that you care a lot about spiritual things. It's kind of a meaningless term, but it is a good starting point to get, to get into the conversation. Verse 23, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. They're so religious that they don't want to risk leaving any gods out. See, pagan gods were always meant to be a means to get you something, whether it's wealth, prosperity, uh, or wisdom. And they didn't want to leave any god out and so possibly incur that, the wrath of that god. And so uh, they created a just-in-case god. You know, this just-in-case god, if he's not among the thousands, we're going to create a statue that's unknown and say now, this statue is for you. It was always for you. <clears throat> and this is Paul's way of invading the culture, finding common ground. Because what he's going to do is he's, a, he's about to make known the God who was unknown. This God had never been heard of in, in Athens, and he's going to make him known. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. That's going to move us to... The third, the third step. Before we do that, how do we take our faith into the marketplace? How do we do that? How do we invade our culture? Well, I think we do it similar to the Apostle Paul. I don't know if you caught it when we read, uh, he went into the marketplace what? Every day. And that's exactly, day by day, that's how we do it. In the ordinary rhythm of our life, going to the grocery store, going to the gas station, going to school, around our neighborhood as we're walking around, around our cubicles, that is how we go when we take the gospel out to our uh, culture. These are daily times that provide occasions for gospel conversations where we can meet people, see them, and engage with them. And we don't always have to know what to say. We can just ask questions. You know, the questions will often reveal what God's substitutes they have in their lives. Because remember, man is incurably religious. And I also notice with Paul, what he does here is he doesn't wait for an invitation. And he does eventually get an invitation to speak, and probably none of us will have that opportunity, or for sure none of us will have that opportunity, But he doesn't wait for that invitation. He goes and he tells. That's what I love about the Christian faith. We are called because we've experienced the love of God in the gospel of Jesus. We're called to go and tell others about what we have experienced. We're called to invade. And that leads to number three, and that is we proclaim Christ by confronting the culture. So we see the culture, We invade the culture, and then we confront the culture with the gospel of Jesus. Unfortunately, we don't have time uh, to consider everything here in these few verses, verses 24 through 31. But let me summarize what Paul does with these two statements. So in the Bible, God makes man in his image. He creates mankind. But idolatry flips that on its head. It does the opposite. It makes God in man's own image. Do you see how it's the opposite from the other? And you don't if you believe one, then you don't believe the other. And that's what Paul's going to show. He's doing what Francis Schaeffer said: blowing the roof off the current house, so that the occupants will seek shelter elsewhere. Well, Paul's about to blow the roof off the house. And he does it with four points as he confronts these Athenian intellectuals. First point, Paul says, God is the creator of the universe. God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Think about what Paul sees. I mean, He's, look, he's looking around and there are temples all over. And he rightly thinks that these hearers think that what they need to do for a new God is build a temple for him to live in. But the truth is that the living God does not need a house built for him. Why? Because he's made the entire universe. God is not found in temples, and he's not found in churches for that matter any more than he's found anywhere else because God made it all and he owns it all. And just like nowadays when you buy something, you know, toys for my daughter, it says, made in China. So everything on earth has the stamp that says, made by God. God is the creator. Second point, because God is creator of the universe, he is also the sustainer of our lives. Verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So, Paul has seen how sadly they would take their offerings, you know, an offering of food to this temple to, to meet the needs of that God. And he says, You cannot give God anything because you have nothing to offer him because he is the one that gives you life and breath. He sustains you. That means our life entirely depends on God. And it's ridiculous, Paul says, to think that you could somehow sustain God. Point three. He is a gracious God. He is a gracious God. Verse 26 And He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth, on on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. The darkness that people are facing is so intense that they don't see God. When I was in high school, a bunch of friends and I, buddies, we went to one of those mazes that was pitch black and this one was even worse than just being pitch black because it was you had to be on your hands and knees. So you're crawling through like boxes, you know, this big. And uh, I remember going in, I had, a gu- I had a friend in front of me and a fr- friend behind me. And I remember once I got in, I couldn't see the friend <laughs> in front of me. So I'm just feeling my way. And sadly, I felt my way all the way to the end. And I felt the end, and, not, and there was no way out. And I'm thinking a guy is coming behind me, and I panicked a little bit, I'll admit. Uh, turns out these mazes go up. uh, So I had to go up. But that feeling of being pitch black and groping in the darkness, that's the word that Paul uses when he describes the plight of those who have been alienated from God. Because of their rebellion, they've been plunged into darkness, and yet God is gracious in that he is near. He's not far from any of us. And he's revealed himself to us. One of the things about Paul is he's saying God is a God of self-revelation. And he's revealed himself to us so that we can find what? Our heart's supreme desire. You see that in verse 27? So that we can find him. We'd be well served to remember that we're not merely introducing people when we share the gospel to a worldview or a life philosophy or religion or even a message. We're we're inviting them to meet a person. The real God is not just a means to get some end, whether it's wealth or a better family or a better life. He is better than all those things. He himself is his own reward. It's interesting that God is also knowable. For the Epicureans, this would have been, uh, this would have been uh, something that they would have disagreed with. He confronts them with the fact that God is involved, not only that, he's sovereign over everything. Look at verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Now, if God is Creator and we are made in His image, then we cannot reduce Him to images of so- silver, stone, or gold. And he gets to that point, and he he uh, presses in. It's ridiculous to think that your God is made out of one of these materials. And then his final point, God is judge over all. Verses 30 through 31. Paul says, in the past age, God overlooked former ignorance, meaning he overlooked their idolatry. And now he commands all to repent. Paul is calling them to recognize that they are running after idols, 30,000 of them, 30,000 of them. Instead of going after the true and living God, and he, he says they must turn and embrace the gospel. Why? That's because judgment is coming, verse 31. Because he, God, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Here is the proof that judgment is coming. What is it? The resurrection of Jesus. So Paul ends with the most offensive thing of all, the exclusivity of Jesus. And we could say that's still the most offensive truth, that Jesus is the only way to God. And this Jesus has been raised from the dead. You know, our text is clear that that in Athens, people could believe a lot of things. But you know one thing that was unbelievable? Rising from the dead. And if I want to say, friend, if you're here, I want you to know that this, the resurrection, is at the heart of Christianity. The heart of Christianity is that there is an empty tomb. It's why we sing like we do. It's why we gather here. And it's why we proclaim Christ to others, because he is alive. And he's coming again to judge all mankind and all of us. All of us will stand before this judge, so the call is repent, turn. So today, in our culture, we can't assume that those who hear the gospel understand the God of the gospel. Paul doesn't assume anything in here, and neither should we. As one commentator said, it's essential that we distinguish the living God of the Bible from what other people think God is like. And that's what Paul does. He introduces God to them, a gracious God who is creator, sustainer, and judge. And by doing so, he confronts their idolatry. Paul's example in Acts 17 at the Areopagus provides for us a roadmap of how we can proclaim Christ in our culture. And that is, we can proclaim him by seeing the culture, invading it, and confronting it. So that the truth of God and the gospel will be believed and God will get all the glory. These three should also give us confidence not to shrink back or withdraw from our surrounding culture, but to engage and boldly proclaim Christ, his death, and his resurrection. You notice the three responses to Paul. There were some who mocked and rejected. There are some who decided, you know, I want st- to think more about this. This is the little procrastination group. And then there are those who joined and believed. And we can expect the same. Seed falls upon the path. Seed falls on the rocky ground. It falls on thorny ground. But praise the Lord, sometimes it falls on good soil. So as we proclaim Christ, we see the same reactions. Now maybe you're here and you are seeing the truth of the gospel this morning. Maybe you have a worldview or life philosophy that's caving in on you, failing to deliver. And you are here and you realize that you are created by God and loved by God. And he is near, so turn to him. Turn to him and believe the good news about Jesus, his death and the resurrection. Because remember what Paul says, uh, there is a day of judgment coming. There's a warning in our text too. Judgment is coming, now is the time to turn before, there is, before it's too late. You might be listening to me this morning thinking, you know what, I'm no Apostle Paul. I don't feel up to this task well, I want you to know you're not the only one. But we have hope today. We don't have to give up or despair. We don't have to hide. Because if you care about Jesus, if you care about following him, and if you care about telling others, then already you're confronting your culture. And why do we go Why do we go out and tell? Because God saw us in our idolatry. And he didn't leave us there. He did not leave us in our idolatry. He he saved us. And so we want to tell others so they can experience that same salvation. It's Paul who wrote these words to the Corinthians When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. One of the most beautiful ways that we proclaim Christ and him crucified as a church is the Lord's table. For as often as you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim it to whom? To the world. To our culture. So in a few moments, those who have given our lives over to Christ, who have been baptized, we're going to take the bread and the cup. And in doing this together, we say to our culture, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ